Amen. Good morning, church. How are you this morning? All right, sit down, sit down, just sit down. <laughs> I want to just welcome you this morning. Uh, some, some things that are developing even at this moment, I need to tell you first because I'll forget them if I don't. But um, apparently Amigo, the Mexican restaurant here in the building, uh, has started doing uh, home games, Seahawk home games, uh, Sunday mornings. Anytime there's a home game, they're open and early uh, so that people can come watch that because like a lot of businesses, they're struggling to make ends meet and they're trying to find ways to be creative about how to bring in customers. So uh, we're going to uh, help them by uh, trying to park on this end of the building or right here if you, if you need access to the door, if you're handicapped, uh, if you have access there. Um, and, and I'm just saying to you, if we got to park in Hagen and walk down, like we'll get a golf cart and I'll come get you, okay? But, but we're going to try to help these guys out on Sunday morning, so just be aware of that as we go forward. And I'll try to get the dates and publish that so that we know which Sundays uh, we're trying to help those guys out. If you missed baptisms yesterday, oh man, it was awesome. And, and there, there's a, some great photos and some video that we're putting together. And, and if you're standing on the beach watching the baptism, you can't really tell where the water ends and the sky begins because it was so foggy. And it was just this really, really cool uh, day. We baptized six people. And uh, so video coming soon. Uh, keep your eyes out for that. We'll, we'll post that. Um, yesterday on the beach was a good reminder that Emmaus Road exists to build disciples and multiply churches. Seeing people take that step of obedience and faith to be baptized. And we, we were talking yesterday. I said, why? What is it? What's baptism? I said, well, it's just an act of obedience. Well, why like get dunked underwater? What is that about? And, and I just said, you know, it's just one of those things. God says do it. It's an act of faith and obedience. And, yeah, it's a little strange when you think about it, but that's just it. Are you going to obey Jesus? Are you going to walk in faith and do what he says, or are you not, really? And so it's a great filter uh, as people come to Jesus and give their whole hearts to him. Um, so, we, so we build disciples, we multiply churches, and that sounds so good. That's such a sweet, short, concise thing to say, but how do we do that? Um, I'm glad you asked, because discipleship happens under two initiatives. There are things that God does in our lives that we didn't plan, that we didn't ask for, that grow us and make us more like Jesus. Amen? And, and some of those are blessed and, and, and awesome, and the experience is tremendous, and some of them are really hard and unexpected, and we find ourselves going, yeah, I didn't really sign up for this. But the Lord does that. He takes the initiative. And then there are initiatives that we take, like things like life groups, and so I uh, want to encourage you towards life groups. There's some information in the hallway. Um, all life groups are starting with four this fall. I think very quickly we'll move to five or six life groups if we have a, a lot of involvement, and that'd be great trying to work out all those details. I'll save you all the names and places and times of the week, which you won't remember anyway if I tell you right now, and just say, go to the table on your way out and, and find a life group that you want to try that works with your schedule and, and, and plug in to life groups. And I think, oh, yeah, I skipped right over the other thing I was going to say. This is why I take the time to put my notes in my iPad, because otherwise I forget stuff. Um, we, we support and work with Safe Harbor Free Clinic here in Stanwood, just across the road, over by the YMCA. Uh, they, they put together a clinic that really serves the uninsured and underinsured in our community and in our region. And it's a tremendous ministry. It's run by Christian doctors. And they, they have other doctors that volunteer that are not believers in Jesus, but they're always 
uh, showing them the gospel and the way to Jesus. And it's just a tremendous ministry. And so here's just a quick note from Sandy Solis, who's the director of Safe Harbor. She said, uh, we're getting new exam tables for the clinic. We've got to move the old ones out. They're fairly heavy. And many of our volunteers are aging, to put it gracefully. Um, she said, I'm looking for help to get the tables loaded into either a pickup truck or a moving truck next Thursday morning, September 17th. That's this Thursday. She sent me this last week. And so she said, I need some strong guys uh, to help us around 8 or 8.30 on Thursday. So it uh, sounds like some heavy lifting, but it's really kingdom building as we support local ministry and reach uninsured and underinsured people from all around our region with the gospel. So if you can help with that, would you see me before you leave today? Just let me know. I'm going to take down your information, your phone number, your social security number, all those things. I want to make sure that I can track you down so that you can help us on Thursday. Okay? And I think that's it for me. Um, let's pray, and then we're going to continue with our worship this morning. Father in heaven, we glorify your name. We thank you that uh, we, are, we are able to be in this place to worship you freely. Our voice is lifted in exaltation this morning, and we don't want to take any of that for granted. We just praise your name. We love you. We bless your name, Lord. Would you inhabit the praise of your people and be among us today? In Jesus' name, amen.
him and to him are all things to God be the glory his word in us from beginning to end to God be the glory to God be the glory
Thank you for the privilege of worshiping you in spirit and in truth by the power of your spirit within us. And we just say again, amen. Blessed be your name, Lord. Amen. Well, you guys have a seat. And I'm going to get a little prop. Yeah, that was there for a reason. Just saying. We are looking this morning at Daniel 11, the most detailed prophecy in the Bible. 
There's more detail here in this chapter prophetically about things that in Daniel's day were yet to come than any other single prophecy in the entirety of Scripture. Last week, we just kind of zoomed through chapter 10 as the opening of this, this three-chapter prophecy that wraps up the book of Daniel. So uh, 10, 11, and 12 are one episode where Gabriel's interacting with Daniel. And this chapter contains uh, one of the most specifically fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, predicting history over a span of 375 years or so. And from there, it, it goes on into the ending of days with amazing accuracy. The chapter is so specific that many critics who deny supernatural revelation have insisted that this was written after the fact. It had to be written after the fact, fraudulently claiming to be prophecy. Uh, we've addressed that uh, problem before. If your starting point is naturalism and all that exists is matter, then I can see where you'd end up there. But if your starting point is God, the creator of all things, heaven and earth and all that is in them, then, then we don't have a problem with God knowing the future of that which he has made, right? So um, we know that this is his word. We know that it is true, it is right, and it is good. And as we move through the text, I think it's going to serve us uh, just to make a pit stop on the subject of immortality, because a lot of what's going to drive the things you're going to see in the text is, is humanity's push, humanity's longing for immortality. This idea that in some uh, way, shape, or form, we, we, we want to live on forever. We want our memory to go on forever. Uh, and I've taken the pain to collect some fabulous quotes on the topic of immortality from different people. Some you will recognize, some you will not. Here's number one, Bruce Lee. The key to immortality is first living a life worth remembering. That's a great thing to say until you ask the question, who determines what a life worth remembering is? Well, now it's relative, right? Now it's relative. Unless, again, your starting point is God. This, the second one, Herb Con Cohen uh, the only thing wrong with immortality is that it tends to go on forever. <laughs> right? I like that one. I like that one. I don't, th I don't see that as a problem, personally. Uh, number three, Simone de Beauvoir, immortality is a terrible curse. Well, you, you get right to the heart of her worldview, don't you? The thought of living forever is a terrible curse. And if you reject the one and true living God, then, then she's right. It is a terrible curse. Um, so just getting you thinking about immortality, right? i got a couple more here. Milan Kundera said, Immortality is a ridiculous illusion, an empty word, a butterfly net chasing the wind. And that's a fun one because we'll come back to this in our series in Ecclesiastes when we start next because that's one of the things that Solomon says again and again and again, right? Life is meaningless. Everything's meaningless under the sun. It's a chasing after the wind. Well, yeah, again, closed ecosystem, naturalism, right? That, that's true. But we don't live in a closed ecosystem. We have a God who made everything, and he's above it all, right? So, so, so we go on to a couple more here. Uh, George Hegel, a man is immortal due to cognition. Knowledge is the root of immortality. Okay, interesting. I, not sure how he arrived at that conclusion or what he thinks about it now that he's dead. Um, so uh, Cliff, Cliff Fadiman said, and here's our, here's our humor, cheese is milk's leap towards immortality. Trying to find some, some way to stay in the game forever, right? 
Um, do with that what you will. And then, and then number seven, this is my favorite. C.S. Lewis says, and it's a long quote, he says, those who put themselves in the hands, in his hands, God's hands, will become perfect as he is perfect. Perfect in love, wisdom, joy, beauty, health, and immortality. The change will not be completed in this life, for death is an important part of the treatment. How far the change will have gone before death in any particular Christian is uncertain. How holy will you get to be before you step out of this life? That's Lewis's point. There is immortality. There is life forever. But there are only two destinations. Man is obsessed with immortality. Because the limitations of our actual mortality are evident to us. They're plain to us. We, we readily arrive at the conclusion that life is short. Uh, now, now if, you're, if you're 25 and under, you may have thought about this a little bit, but the older you get, the more evident it, it, it gets, right? Life is a vapor. Life is short. Um, th- this, by the way, <coughs> and we'll circle back to this, is why we pay movie stars and professional athletes and entertainers so much money. They have the most important job in our culture. Some of you are going, really? Like, really? The most important? Yes, because they get paid to distract us from the reality that we are dying. That's why we pay them so much money. And in our frenzied, godless, often godless quest for immortality, human beings go to great lengths to make a name for themselves, to try to achieve historical status so as to be remembered down through the annals of time. And and though I can't account for all of the motives of every personage we're going to read about in the text this morning, I can say that much of what's motivating these individuals is the quest for immortality. It's driving them. It's driving them. And so God through the angel Gabriel, is going to show Daniel the succession of the Persian and Grecian empires through what we would call the intertestamental period. That's that period of time between the ending of the writing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the events of the New Testament. There's a gap there, and and so this this, uh, prophecy deals with that intertestamental period. And God lays bare for Daniel and for us what, what fleeting things worldly prestige and power truly are. It comes and it goes really quickly. And and, and the thing about power is that it it immediately begins to decay the moment you take possession of it. And and when it comes to the kingdoms of men, God and his providence, he sets one up and he pulls another down. And he does as he pleases because he is the Lord God Almighty. And, And even as the world is filled with fighting and war, even now, all of it is perfectly foreseen by God. Not a single word of his ever falls to the ground, but that which he has designed and declared shall certainly come to pass. Amen. So in some striking ways, this prophecy highlights this quest for immortality. Some, sometimes the participants are blissfully unaware that that's what's driving them, their ambition, but other times they're keenly aware. And so this serves as a warning for us, even those of us who know God and trust in Him, that we wouldn't get caught up in these things that we can't control, right? We wouldn't spend our time unnecessarily worrying about the things that we can't control. And and in this, he graciously reminds us that history is unfolding as he foretold in his word. And we need not fear because we know how the story ends, right? So let that guard your heart as we go to the text this morning. And, And again, normally I would read the text and then circle back and exposit the text, but it's a lot to cover, so we're just going to jump right in. Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. As for me... 
In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now remember, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel, okay? This is Gabriel speaking. And, and um, these visions, uh, these verses detail the division of the Greek empire among four, at that time, future kings. Um, by the way, this whole section of Daniel 11 is pretty heavy on history. If you're, not a, if you're not a lover of history, try your best not to check out, okay? Like, stay in there. I'll, I'll try to make it as entertaining as possible. But um, there are going to be three kings that arise in Persia in succession, and then a fourth who would be very strong and very rich who would oppose Greece. And we see that in the, f- the fulfillment of that in the person of Xerxes who was the one who did stir up the realm against Greece. But this prophecy left out, it leaves out a king, his name is Smyrtus of Persia, and he ruled for less than a year, and he was a fake usurper to the crown. He wasn't even in the line, and when they found out, they killed him. So it's just like, we're not even going to mention that guy. Um, but this, this, these visions, these insights are relevant because each of these empires tried to wipe out the people of God at one point in time. That's, that's why God's giving pain, the, taking the pain to explain this to Daniel because their relationship to the Jewish nation. Uh, the Persian Empire tried to wipe out the Jewish people during the book uh, of, of Esther. We know that Xerxes was reigning then in the plot of Haman to exterminate the Jews, right? And, and we know the Greek empire tried to wipe out the Jewish people during the reign of Antiochus IV when he attempted to kill every Jew who did not renounce their commitment to God and embrace Greek culture. And so that's, that's, the, that's the pivot point here in the text. These, these empires are at some point trying to exterminate God's people. Verse 3 says, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not to the level of his rule, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So, so we've got the rise of a mighty king. Daniel is told of a mighty king with great dominion, but his kingdom would not endure and it would be divided after the death of this mighty king. And, and so we see that fulfilled in Alexander the Great, who was certainly a mighty king. Alexander died at 32 years of age uh, from a fever after a drunken party in Babylon. But this prophecy doesn't primarily concern Alexander because he never, he never even attempted to do any harm to Jerusalem, though he conquered that whole area of the world. There's an interesting uh, episode in the historian Josephus who records an, uh, the arrival of Alexander to Jerusalem. In fact, I'll just read a short excerpt from Josephus, The Antiquities of the Jews. This is book 7, chapter 8. It says, Now Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go to Jerusalem. And Jadua, the high priest, when he heard, was in agony. He was under terror. He knew that he should have to meet the Macedonians and that their king was displeased at his disobedience. He therefore ordained that everybody in Jerusalem should make supplications and join with him in offering sacrifices to God as he sought uh, God to protect the nation and deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. God warned Jadua, the, the priest, in a dream which came upon him after he'd offered sacrifice that he needed to take courage and adorn the city and open the gates, that the rest appear in white garments, but that he and the priest should meet the king wearing their priestly garments without any dread of any ill consequences which God would prevent. 
So the procession was venerable and the manner of it different from the other nations. Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments and the priests clothed in fine linen and the high priest wearing purple and scarlet clothing and his mitre on his head, having the golden plate with the name of God engraved, he, he, he basically stopped his armies and approached this, the, the, the whole Jerusalem uh, entourage by himself, which is, that's a no-no. You don't do that. You, you're going to get killed if you do that, right? But he, he was so just taken by this, and he walked right up, and, uh, and he, it says he adored that name, the name of God. And so he worshiped and saluted the high priest. And the Jews did all together with one voice salute Alexander and come about him. And Alexander said, for this very, re- this very person, the priest, Jadua, um, I saw in a dream wearing these clothes when I was in Dios at Macedonia. And while I was considering with myself how to obtain the dominion of Asia, uh, I was exhorted to make no delay, but pass over the sea and take my army to, to take dominion over the Persians. And now seeing Jadua, this person, this priest, in his priestly garments, I remember the vision and exhortation which I had in my dream, and I believe that I bring my army under now divine conduct and shall thereby conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians. He took it as a sign. He'd had a vision of the priests and the people coming out of Jerusalem to meet him. And then when it happened, he's like, whoa, okay, God's with me for this, for whatever, whatever it is I've got to do to destroy the Persians and set up a new kingdom. It's interesting. Um, the rest of the prophecy focuses on the two, two of the four inheritors of Alexander's realm, their dynasties established. And, and these are the only two focused on because they constantly were fighting over the promised land. They had the kingdom to the north, kingdom to the south. I'm from the south. I'm always going to root for the south. Um, <laughs> woo-hoo. Uh, so you get northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and then this, this authority, they're vying for the authority. Um, verse 5, the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So one of the four of the, the inheritors of the empire after Alexander died would become stronger than the others, and it was Ptolemy I of Egypt. And he exerted his power over the Holy Land, and uh, he dominated the region, and he had a prince named Seleucus who rose to power, and he took dominion over Syria and became even more powerful than his former Egyptian rulers. So you've got two dynasties. You've got the Seleucids, who are identified with the kings of the north, and the Ptolemies, who are the kings of the south, Okay. And these dynasties fought for about 130 years on and off, and the stronger always holding dominion over the land of Israel, the Holy Land. Okay, Verse 6, I'm telling you, a lot of history here, a lot of history. Uh, After some years they will make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall give up and her attendants he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. So now joined by marriage, the kings of the north and the south would be allies for a little while and try to make an agreement and a a treaty together. And this was fulfilled in the marriage of Antiochus II of the Seleucid dynasty and Bernice, the daughter of Ptolemy II. So there's peace for a little while because of this marriage. But when Ptolemy II died, the whole thing fell apart. Antiochus II put Bernice away and took back his former wife, Laodice, and being the smart woman that she was, did not trust her husband, Antiochus II, because he had married somebody else, and then it's like, oh, okay, I'm done with her. You can come back. Never never a good thing. And, and so she murdered him and then had Bernice and her infant son and all of her attendants killed. 
It's kind of like a daytime soap opera, really, on steroids. And, and so then she set her son Seleucus II on the throne over the Syrian dominion. So we go on to verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he will refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So Gabriel is telling Daniel that a branch of her root uh, would come from the south and prevail over the kings of the north. And what we see in history is uh, Ptolemy III, who was the brother of Bernice, that makes him the branch of her roots, avenged the murder of his sister and invaded Syria. And he humbled Seleucus II and, and went on to live a little bit longer than he did. Verse 10 says that his sons will wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which just keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So now we've got the kings of the, the, the sons of the king of the north continuing this battle, carrying this on, not letting it die out. And one of the sons would conquer the Holy Land, would overwhelm and pass through. That's what that phrase means which stood as a buffer between the kings of the south and the kings of the north, right? So this was Seleucus III and Antiochus III, the two sons of Seleucus II. Both generals, both mighty warriors, uh, but only ruled a short time. And, and in a furious battle, Antiochus III took back the Holy Land from the dominion of the Ptolemies. So it's back and forth. It's like a chess game. If you could see this played out on a chessboard, it, it, it would just look like two grandmasters constantly taking each other's rooks and knights and like, who's going to win in the end of this they're, they're both going to be dead like, who's, who's ultimately going to win this so we get to verse 11 and 12 the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north and he shall raise a great multitude but it shall be given into his hand and when the multitude is taken away his heart will be exalted and he will cast down tens of thousands but he shall not prevail so now the king of the south gains the upper hand over the king of the north. Daniel was told that the king of the south would attack and meet a great multitude of soldiers from the king of the north, but that the king of the north would lose the battle and, and his multitude would be defeated. And this was fulfilled in Antiochus III being defeated at the Battle of Raphia. And, and because of that loss, he was forced to give dominion back of the Holy Land back to the Ptolemies, back to Ptolemy IV. So let's keep going. I don't want to put you to sleep with all the history. Um, th just think about this, though. I mean, just stop and think. God is telling Daniel way far in advance. And, uh, are you appreciating the detail here? Like, this played out perfectly in history. It's just mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Verse 13, For the king of the north shall arise again, a raise a multitude greater than the first. After some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people. He's talking to Daniel, who are his people? The Jews, right? The violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So we're told that this northern dynasty would answer back and defeat the king of the south in this extended siege. The victory would give the king of the north dominion over the glorious land, over the promised land. 
Antiochus III invaded Egypt again, gaining final control over the armies of Ptolemy V and over the Holy Land. And the Jews helped Antiochus III defeat the king of the south because they resented the rule of the Egyptian Ptolemies. And this is what is meant in the text by violent men of your own people shall exalt themselves in the fulfillment of the vision, right? Through the Jewish people of the glorious land, though they initially welcomed Antiochus III as a liberator from Egypt, their decision to support him was very unwise uh, because he turned upon them and brought destruction upon them later. And then verse 17, so he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom and shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom but it shall not stand or be to his advantage so the king of the north who ruled over the holy land would attempt to dominate and destroy the king of the south and this is fulfilled in Antiochus III giving his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V of Egypt now this is um, this is not the Cleopatra uh, that married Charlton Heston in the movie right this, this, is, this, is a, this is earlier. This is about 100 years before that. Um, but uh, Ptolemy did this, uh, excuse me, Antiochus did this to, to gain permanent influence. He thought, if I can get my daughter in there to marry this guy, I'll have influence through her, and I can basically rule all the kingdoms. And that was a disappointment because the plan didn't succeed because Cleopatra wasn't faithful to her husband. Um, so that, that all fell apart. Um, can't account for human nature in some of this stuff. The best laid plans of men go awry. Uh, verses 18, 19, coming to the end of our section here. Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him, and then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So after this disappointing effort through his daughter Cleopatra, the king of the north would turn his efforts to the coastlands. And the prophecy says that he would stumble and fall. And this happened when Antiochus III turned his attention towards the areas of Asia Minor and Greece. And he even got the help of the Greek general uh, Hannibal from Carthage. But a Roman general named Lucius Scipio defeated Antiochus in Greece. And Antiochus had planned to humiliate Greece. He wanted to just put them to humiliation, but he himself was humiliated instead, and he returned to his former regions, having lost all that he had gained, and then he shortly thereafter died. And so it was just this inauspicious ending of his life. And then verse 20, Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So after the inglorious ending of this king of the north, his successor would raise taxes and then meet a swift ending. If only all who raised taxes met swift endings. <laughs> so th- this, is, this is the first part of this prophecy. Now, now what's going to happen in the following verses next week, we'll get, like, this will shift from history to future prophecy. And we, we just need to be aware of that. But right now we're getting, and for Daniel, this was all future prophecy. None of this had come to pass. And God is just exact in his details. This part of the prophecy is fulfilled, uh, this ending in the brief reign of Seleucus III. And he sought to tax his dominion, the glorious kingdom, the holy land, and increase revenue. And his plan was to actually pillage the temple in Jerusalem. But God sent uh, his ambassador an angelic vision and warned him not to do it. And so Seleucus III was, in, was assassinated 
uh, probably by his own brother, Antiochus IV. There was a lot of love in that family. Um, yeah, close, close family, that. So what do we do with this? I mean, for us, this is all history. And it's, it's kind of it's novel, and it's kind of cool that God got all this detail in advance for us. And we can go back and read and go, man, yeah, God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the future uh, prophecy. Um, but, but I want to take us back to what we began with. Because James chapter 4, James says this in verses 1 and 2. He says, what is it that causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it, isn't it your own passions that are at war within you? Isn't that the thing that causes division and quarrels and fights and, and, and disagreement? That you have passions and you want what you want and the person next to you wants what they want. And so there's this constant butting of heads, right? James says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. He says, well, I've never killed anybody. Well, go back to what Jesus said. If you've hated your brother, you've, you've committed murder in your heart, Right? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain it. You can't get it, so you fight and you quarrel. So because of sin, James would say, mankind suffers from a deep-seated lust for power, pleasure, prestige, and possessions. We just want all that we can get. We think that that gives us our worth. It establishes our value as people. And deep down in our wayward, broken hearts, we believe deep down, that our, our worth and our identity and our satisfaction and our desires are all met in those things, in possessions and power and prestige and pleasure. And, and if you don't believe me, just look around at the world. Everybody's pursuing those things headlong. And I would just say pursuit of those is a fool's errand. And we can see it time and time again down through the ages. You can trace it all the way back to Cain and Abel. It's a fool's errand. And this prophecy that we're dealing with in chapter 11 through what we call the intertestamental period unpacks this in gory detail that, that when people pursue their own power and what they think is going to give them meaning and immortality, it comes at the expense of other people. And how gracious of our Father to give us these lessons in His Word that we might learn from those who've come before us and hopefully avoid their pitfalls. I mean, I don't, I don't really anticipate trying to take over Syria anytime soon, but I do get into headbutting competitions with my wife from time to time, and I think there's some application here, right? Right? So, as we consider prophetic texts like this one this morning, I want to give us two handholds that will help us as students of God's Word. Number one, God's foreknowledge is not the same as determinism. Now, those may be brand new words for some of you theologically, and I want to take a moment to define our terms. Foreknowledge in the Greek, pronosis, to know beforehand, to have advanced knowledge of future events and circumstances. In Christian theology, foreknowledge uh, refers to the all-knowing, omniscient nature of God, whereby God knows all reality before it is real, all things and events before they happen. He's omniscient, okay? Determinism is the doctrine that all events, including human action, are ultimately determined by causes external to the human will. Now, in, in the case of Christianity, we, we would call it theistic determinism because then we're saying God is the one who ordains or causes all things whatsoever come to pass. Now, I just what I want to do this morning is make the distinction that foreknowledge is not the same as determinism. So God knows all things. And God does determine some things. I'll give you an example. The crucifixion. 
In fact, Peter's preaching in Acts 2, and, and, and Peter says this. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You go, well, Peter, which is it? Was Jesus delivered up by God, or did the people kill him? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Here you have an amazing blend of God's decree and determination and the will of mankind. Again, uh, consider that God has ordained laws about sowing and reaping in his Bible. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction, right? There are laws. Like if, if you do X, you will get Y. So there's a determination that if you do X, God's determined you will receive Y. But that's not the same thing as God choosing Y for you or X for you. It doesn't follow logically that because God determines some things that he determines all things whatsoever come to pass. I don't believe that's the case. And, and I think to assert that he does determine everything would be to impugn his holiness. Because then God's the one who's responsible for sin. And, and I'm, we're not going there. He's not responsible for sin. I'm responsible for sin. Uh, that's, that's on me. That's on me, right? So, so I want us to be clear about God's foreknowledge in, in these prophecies. And I'll just, let's just do a little experiment. I've got the podium here, and we've got the podium. I've got a pen, and, and I think we have gravity. Do we have gravity in the room today? Um, and so I, I purposefully kind of tilted the podium. Now, I'm going to lay this perfectly round pen on the podium, and you tell me what's going to happen. What's going to happen to the pen? It's going to roll off. You have foreknowledge, pronosis, mystical pronosis. All right, let's see if you're right. Did you cause that to happen? Hmm. I freely set the pin on the podium. What was the causal agent? Was it your foreknowledge or was it gravity? Okay. Did the fact that you foreknew that it would happen cause it to happen? No. This is an important lesson for us when we study prophecy. Because even though the text doesn't detail all of it, it's filled with intrigue, lust, hatred, anger, murder, debauchery, unfaithfulness, and adultery, and bloodshed, and on and on and on. And that's not God. God has ordained things to happen. He has, he has told us in advance that they will happen. But we can't lay all of it at his feet. Sin, human sin, wickedness, that's on us. That's on us. Okay? So... It's an important lesson. God's telling us in advance through Daniel about all these things, and he can do that because he's omniscient. He knows everything. But we want to go too far into determinism that makes God culpable for all that sin. That's point number one. Here's application point number two. Man's quest for immortality usually results in lots and lots of sin. <laughs> lots of sin. Because we're so desperate. We're so desperate to cling on to something that's beyond this life. We strive to create our own immortality, so to speak. We want history to remember us, right? We, we, uh, I'm reading a book this week, um, and I can't think of the author's name. I just picked it up, but he talks about um, mortality mitigation, that most people in our culture are engaged in some form of mortality mitigation or, or, or mort immortality projects. Yeah, something, to, something that will be remembered on, right? And I just wonder if I asked you this morning how many of you could name the names of your great-grandparents. Probably most of us could not. 
Some, some of you could. Your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents. That's only just four, four generations back. We don't remember. We don't remember. And, and, in, and in 25, 30, 50 years, if Jesus hasn't returned back, nobody will know who the Kardashians are. Praise the Lord. <laughs> right? We forget. We don't remember. We don't remember. And, and that, so it's like the kings of old in this prophecy. We we're too prone to invest our lives in the here and now rather than in the life to come because we think that our meaning and our, our fulfillment and, and, and hopefully the memory of us will go on forever here, right? It's a waste of time. It's a waste, it's a waste of life. Mankind's obsessed with immortality. Because of the limitations of our actual mortality, they're evident to us. They're plain to us. Which, again, I, I said this earlier in the opening, it's why we pay movie stars and athletes and entertainers so much money, because their job is to distract us from the reality that we are dying. Every day, you move closer to death. I just take that out of here today and, and, and go in the joy of the Lord, right? Every day, we're moving closer to leaving this world. And it's their job. It's their job to distract us from the reality that we're dying. You've got things like the cult of celebrity. I mean, you see people just waiting to be near to the red carpet on some of these events who are bursting into tears if they can just touch Leonardo DiCaprio. It's like, what is wrong with you? It's a cult. We, we, people putting all of our hope in our leaders and our politicians. I'm like, track record? What are you doing? The, the, the level of fandom, YouTube followings, they've got a whole subculture of latching onto personalities because of the image that these people are portraying after they've spent hours editing the video. Like You're not seeing the real them. You know that, right? Uh, the pursuit of sex and war. And maybe those two don't sound like they go together, but they're both motivated by the same thought. If I can't conquer death, I'll conquer people. Even anger. We get angry when the barista spells our name wrong on the cup. It's like, what? What? How dare you not know that Mike has a Y and a silent Q? What, what, what's the matter with us? We're afraid of death. We don't want to think about death. We want to be immortal. We want to live forever. And all of this results in all of our failures to save ourselves. It's a constant failure. And even professing Christians are exposing their truest and deepest beliefs about immortality in moments like this one in history. We're frantic. The church is frantic. There aren't a lot of Christians that are just at peace in the midst of this because it's shaking us. And only that which uh, Scripture says is, is, is can't be shaken remains, right? And so we're being shaken being shaken. There's this deep fear and dread instead of a hopeful expectation that we're going to be with Jesus. And you go, well, why is that? Why is the church experiencing deep dread instead of a hopeful expectation? It's because we've not obeyed Jesus when he said, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. We've laid up treasure on earth. We've made this our focus and we're shaken by what's happening. This is our moment in time. You think about prophecy like this in the book of Daniel and God foreknowing even where we would be at this moment as a church and in this culture and all the destruction and all of the, the chaos that's happening all around us. God knows and he, he knows where his people are and he loves us and he's got us. He's got us. And we of all people ought 
to not only be in a position to die well, but to come to the end of our lives at any moment, knowing that Jesus is our hope. That's the thing that should really be indicative of who we are as a people. Sad to report that's largely not the case, but by the grace of God, by the faithful intake of His Word, through the faithful assembling of ourselves together to worship and to fellowship, we can grow towards Christ-likeness. We can become more like Jesus. And if Jesus modeled anything for us, He certainly modeled how to live free from the constraints of this world and how to die well. You've got a good model in Jesus. So folks, you and I, I just want to say this as we close this morning, you and I are part of the ultimate statistic. Ten out of ten people die. You ever think about that? No, I did. I knew. I knew this one guy. That he just. He's. He's still alive, forever. No, you, no, you don't. Ten out of ten. out of ten people die. The question is not whether or not that event is going to happen to you. The question is when will that event happen to you, and are you ready to stand before Jesus and give an account for your life? I want you to know that my goal for you as your pastor is to, is to work into your character a disposition that says, I am ready at any moment to stand before my Lord. In fact, there's a part of me that longs for it. I can't wait. And until he's ready to take me home, I'm here. I'm his. Do with me what you want, Lord. Do with me what you want. The church needs to wake up and remember that this is a rescue mission. And we've been dropped in here behind enemy lines to seek and save the lost. And when the mission's complete, we're going home. Hallelujah. We're going home. That's it. That's it. Let's have that perspective. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come before you this morning. We, we stand in awe of your power, uh, your omniscience, your omnipotent, Lord. You're everywhere. You're omnipresent. We can't even conceptualize all of what those things mean. We just have words that help us give handholds to that. But we just recognize that you are other. That's what holy means. You're something other than us. You're not the best human grandpa with a big beard in the sky. You're, you're, you're other. You're, you're different. And you know the end from the beginning. And you, you tell us these things in your word. And we just want to be aligned with you. We want to be filled with your spirit. We, we want to be a people who represent you well, especially in these days of chaos. Lord, give us a fresh filling of your spirit today as we continue to worship you by the grace of your presence among us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, because of sin, we suffer from this deep-seated lust for power, pleasure, prestige, and possessions. Deep in our wayward, broken hearts, we believe that our worth and identity, our satisfaction and desires are met in those things. But how gracious of our Heavenly Father to give us these lessons in His Word that we might learn from those who've come before us and avoid those pitfalls. So go out of this place this morning filled with the Holy Spirit, bathed in the grace of Jesus, renewed in his word and equipped to do battle with our enemy as we seek and save the lost. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.